Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Big Fish Podcast. I hope you're here because you enjoyed my conversation with Tara Amaral of Fidelity and you're back for more. And with David Reed of Vale Resorts, you won't be disappointed. David and I know each other well from almost 20 years together at Accenture, where I was fortunate to have worked under his leadership for many of those years. David is a mentor and a friend and one of the most efficient and disciplined people I have ever known. And if you're patient enough to get to the very end of my conversation with him, he shares one of his secrets to personal productivity, and it's pretty cool. So, without further delay, here's Episode 2, Part 1 of Big Fish in the Talent Pool with David Reed, VP of Global Talent for Vail Resorts. Enjoy! We are here with David Reed at Vale Resorts in beautiful Broomfield, Colorado, and uh, I'm really pleased to be here with David today. We've got a bunch of things to cover, a lot of interesting questions, um, but uh, before we get too far into this, let me just uh, let you hear David's voice and uh, have him introduce himself. Hi, Aaron. It's great to see you. Thanks for the opportunity to be together here today. I look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, first thing I like to do with all of my uh, victims, I mean subjects, is, <laughs> is to just get a sense of um, scope and size of role, just just so we can kind of put everything that comes after that into context. So, uh, David, you know, kind of lay out for us, you know, your areas of accountability in terms of business units, geos, uh, how do you quantify the work that you do on an annual basis? So, Vail Resorts um, is the owner and operator of destination ski resorts around the world um, and we're a vertically integrated business which means that guest experience is something that we uh, hold near and dear to our operations uh, in fact our company mission is experience of a lifetime so in terms of our business yes we run ski mountains uh, and we also run hospitality outlets uh, both hotel we manage condominiums that part of the experience that guests often have associated with their ski visit. Um, and then um, we also own and operate uh, retail stores and rental outlets. So um, when you need ski gear or when you need to rent something for your ski visit, we have the retail outlets that enable you to do that. And then here in Colorado, we also own a transportation company. So the vertical integration piece is that from the moment you land, at uh, Denver International Airport, there's a transportation service that can pick you up and take you to our resort, check you into one of our hotel properties, um, ensure you have the appropriate gear for your mountain adventure through one of our retail outlets, and then ultimately, um, you're on the mountain. And so that whole experience is part of what we're after for, from an experience of a lifetime perspective. So that's the company. In terms of my own responsibilities, uh, I lead our talent acquisition function, so anything having to do with the acquisition of people in that um, vertical integration model is my responsibility. One of the unique and, and really fun things about this business is that, as you can imagine, a ski business has some cyclicality to it, just based on the winter season. And so um, 
We're open in the winter, and more and more, we're also open in the summer for summer mountain activities. Um, but there's very much of a steep um, acceleration to the hiring and onboarding of talent uh, in advance of the winter season. Then likewise, on the back end of the winter season, there's a very steep offboarding of talent. Then in the summer, there's uh, less steep, but nevertheless, uh, an increase in hiring and then subsequently a, a decrease in hiring. And so that, that is one of the unique challenges of um, talent acquisition here at Vail Resorts, and frankly, one of the things that attracted me here. So my responsibility includes all of that. And in terms of numbers, um, we'll hire about 25,000 seasonal workers uh, in advance of each winter season. Um, and that's over the course of about a three-month period. So when you annualize that, we're pushing through about the equivalent of 100,000 hires per year. Um, and we do that in, in a three-month period. I'm also responsible for our corporate recruiting. And so, um, as you can imagine here in Broomfield, uh, near Boulder, in Colorado, we've got a team of about seven or 800 people. Uh, and so there are the normal sort of functional um, hiring requirements here as well. So finance and HR and IT and marketing and all those kinds of things. All right. Very helpful. And uh, global. I know Vail Resorts is obviously global and uh, in particular, um, you're, you're acquiring uh, all of those vertical integration units all over the world. Am I right? You are right. Um, and so at the moment, our non-U.S. resorts include Whistler Blackcomb in British Columbia, Canada, and then also Australia's largest resort, ski resort, which is called Parisher. Um, my responsibilities do include Whistler Blackcomb, but they exclude Parisher at this point. Now, you also point out a very interesting um, business strategy around acquisition, and that's definitely what our company is about. And so, in addition to the day-to-day -day responsibilities for talent acquisition, I'm also responsible for the integration of those new properties as we acquire them um, from a talent acquisition perspective. And Whistler Blackcomb um, has been a year-long journey of how do we actually go from just a U.S. company to a North American company? And we have designs on resorts in Japan, and in Europe, as part of our broader business strategy, to build a network of resorts so guests have options globally in terms of where they can visit resorts. So those will draw on some of my Accenture experiences. And, and as you recall from Accenture, uh, there are all kinds of unique challenges associated with global growth. Yeah, no doubt. Actually, Whistler Blackcomb is one of my favorite places. Great, great skiing. And when I heard that Vail Resorts had acquired them, you know, I thought, okay, just make it better. <laughs> I don't know how you could do that, but just make it better. Make sure that it doesn't go backwards. But we, we just love going there as a family. And um, wow, what a, I mean, what a great jewel in the crown. And, and it's a pretty cool crown to begin with. So that's, that's terrific. Um, all right. So that is today. So let's go backwards. You're a runner and a triathlete, uh, but not everyone knows that you were uh, an Olympic hopeful. Tell, tell us about that experience. Yes, I was a lifelong competitive swimmer, um, which in many ways I think shaped part of who I am. Um, and, but we'll tell that story at a different time. Um, I was a swimmer at USC, and USC is known for its um, sort of swimming prowess, among other things. Um, and I had chosen to take a year off from school in 1979 to focus on training for the Olympic trials for the Olympics that then were planned to be held in Moscow uh, in the summer of 1980. Um, and my parents, um, I was blessed to have parents who supported me in that choice. Uh, and so I spent the whole year um, preparing. 
Then, in the springtime of 1980, um, you may recall that uh, Russia had invaded Afghanistan, um, and President Carter at that time made the choice that, well, if Russia's going to do that, then we're not going to go to your Olympics. And uh, so the decision was made to have the United States boycott those Summer Olympics. Um, and so that chance to qualify for the Olympic team was taken away. And it was, as you can imagine, the morning, I can still picture the morning that our swim coach came out on the pool deck, sat us all down, and delivered that news. Um, and um, it's, it's a defining moment for me because not only had I invested a year of nothing but focusing on that outcome, but I had actually spent the better part of my whole life building up to that, right, and investing hundreds of thousands of hours in the pool. Um, and then that opportunity is taken away. And so the life lesson for me out of that is you can have a dream, invest in that dream, and something can change that you have no control over and it be taken away. And guess what? That is life. And so you can either choose to become bitter about it or you can choose to say, what a great experience that was and I'm disappointed, but life goes on. And so now how do I redirect my passion? And that was a huge lesson for me. You know, I also remember when that big decision was made. I didn't personally know anyone at the time that was affected by it, but I can only imagine the devastation. Like, you get permission to be devastated when that happens, right? How long did it take for you to come to that more mature conclusion? Yeah, I'm actually um, a bit of a pragmatist, I've learned, when it comes to things like that. And um, so I would say after the initial shock, um, a conversation with my parents, um, you know, it, I was over it um, and I was willing to, to move on. Um, now, I give huge credit to people who were affected by that, who hung around for the next four years um, and who kept their dream alive and who qualified for the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles and you know, fulfilled the dream. I chose not to do that. I'm like, I gave it my shot. It's time to move on, graduate from college, start a professional career. But I give huge credit to the people who, who just kept that fire alive. And paid the cost, which was another four years of their life for the possibility of a medal or maybe not a medal, right? So yeah, wow, terrific. Thank you for talking about that. Actually, I've known you a long time and I've never heard that story through to its completion. So thank you for that, wow. Um, okay, so let's talk about your career. Speaking of starting your professional career, you decided to go the accountant route, at least initially, um, have a degree in accounting from USC, went with Anderson initially, or was that an internship? Yeah, so I graduated from USC, like many people, not really sure what I wanted to do. Um, but I had a professor who uh, I really liked, and he liked me, and he had a contact at Arthur Anderson who said, you guys need to meet each other, great person, great talent, connect. And so we did. And that was really the basis of my decision, was a relationship with um, an Arthur Anderson professional. He said, yeah, just come on board. Um, accounting's not for everyone, but it is pretty cool, and you'll learn a lot, and see what happens. And so I said, sounds good to me. And um, so I did actually join the Arthur Anderson um, company and um, became an accountant. And... Um, over time, um, I thought, well, hey, maybe this accounting thing is for me. The way Arthur Anderson as a big accounting firm practices accounting is different than the way most mom and pop 
accounting firms practice accounting. And I think maybe I want to be my own boss someday. So I'm actually going to leave Arthur Anderson and join a small accounting firm and try this out. Um, and so I left Arthur Anderson. I joined a small accounting firm in Long Beach, California. And um, through the course of that, as well as enrolling in the MBA program at night, I actually came to realize that accounting wasn't for me. <laughs> and it was actually a second crisis moment in my life, the Olympics being the first, this being the second, where I had invested a, deg a degree by now five years of my life in a field that I felt no passion for. And ultimately, I was fired from that accounting firm because I didn't like it and it showed in my work and I was incapable as an accountant. And I thought, holy cow, what is going on? Um, I thought I had it all figured out. What am I going to do with my life? And fortunately, back to relationship and its importance in recruiting, I attended an Arthur Anderson alumni event and one of the people I had worked for there said, hey, what are you doing now? I said, funny you should ask. I don't know what I'm doing right now. And he said, have I got a deal for you? We're starting up this consulting business and we need somebody to come in and run the financial operation for this new startup and recruiting. What do you think? I said, well, I can probably have handle the financial side of it because I'm an accountant, but I know nothing about recruiting, but I'll give it a shot if you're willing to, to take a chance on me. He said, absolutely. So I rejoined Arthur Anderson, this time in the consulting division, and um, started a whole new career. That is awesome. I, I, I've never heard that story either. That's amazing. So what's What's interesting about that is that, um, you know, your willingness to kind of just rely on your own ability to figure stuff out, quick study, I would call it, right? Uh, and know that there is one piece that you're probably not going to have a lot of tr trouble with, but then a whole other piece. And up until that point, you had not been through a formal recruiting experience even, not even personally. Nobody had, like, you didn't go through any campus interviews or anything no, like I that? Did. Okay. I did. Okay. Uh, so I had been through it as a cons so I had been recruited through the processes, but that was the extent of my experience with recruiting. And this was before the days of online applications, and, you know, it was all, I, I remember, paper. <laughs> Yikes. Okay. Uh, awesome. So uh, then you spent most of your career at Accenture, what was, a, you know, eventually the evolved version of Anderson Consulting, and there's a whole lot of history in there that we all, some of us, uh, are familiar with and remember. Um, but... I, I kind of want to make the connection between your financial acumen, so so your early training in the financial realm, which certainly tells us something about the way your brain works. I mean, you know, you may not have wanted to be an accountant, but the financial side was a sort of a language for you. How much of that played a role in your ability to be successful in a completely different career path, more focused on HR, in this case, recruiting? Well, it has and continues to be a very important part of who I am professionally. The way I describe myself is a business person who happens to know quite a bit about recruiting. And that's actually a mantra that I encourage people who are new to recruiting to test out for themselves. Because ultimately, if you want to become a leader, really in any field, but I know recruiting, you have to come from a basis of business acumen. Um, yes, the transactional piece of recruiting is connecting candidates with jobs, but surrounding all of that, whether it's process or metrics or technology um, or even relationships with hiring managers, if you have a depth of understanding about the way business works, 
you can have an understanding of what's important to the members of your stakeholder group. And so what I have found is um, the more I understand and am fully engaged with the business strategy, the better I am at recruiting and the better I am at strategizing about how recruiting needs to support that broader business objective. So as an example, the way this shows up today is we're a public company and so once a quarter there's an earnings call and a 10K release and so my leadership team sits in my office and we listen to the investor call and we read the the 10K release and then we talk about it afterwards. What did we hear? Where is the business? And how does that apply specifically to what we're trying to do and what our priorities are within talent acquisition? And I think that's a little bit unique and it goes back to your original point, which is how does you know, sort of business and financial acumen apply in the context of recruiting. I think that's critical, especially as advanced, sophisticated, and complex business is becoming now today that, you, in my opinion, you can't be a successful head of talent acquisition without really understanding the business and even starting to make some predictions based on the market, based on the industry, based on your own experience, and then, of course, based on demand as to where you need to lead the business to. So... Um, I'm with you there. Accenture, you were with uh, All Told, including the Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting years, 28 years. So that's a long time by any measure. Um, Why did you stay that long? Well, the beauty of the Accenture experience was that it was one career within many careers. And um, the chance to work with a bunch of different companies, uh, the chance to work with a bunch of different people, felt like many careers and so I I remain um, very grateful for my Accenture experience it's an awesome company it provides such a well-rounded experience to anyone who's interested in that sort of thing traveled the world Um, and so uh, you know after 28 years I had an opportunity um, both sort of mentally and also financially to step back and say well now what's next and that's really what led me to Vail Resorts. I didn't know actually what Vail Resorts was. Um, but what I knew about myself was that I wanted to connect what I'm passionate about in life with what I do at work. And so, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, I'm an athlete and I love the outdoors. Um, and so I thought, well, where, where could I join that passion for the outdoors with what I do for a living. And fortunately, uh, a search uh, consultant who had been retained to fill this position at Bell Resorts somehow got a hold of me and he called me and he said, hey, how do you feel about working for the world's greatest ski company? And I said, I've never thought about that. Tell me more. <laughs> and um, as the more we talked about it, the more excited I became. Um, and you know the business complexity being what I described a little bit earlier um, was actually also very intriguing and so that's how I ended up here. Awesome and we're gonna get to that as well in just a minute. I want to stick with Accenture for just a minute though in terms of your moves. So you said you traveled the world of course just needing to be serving many businesses in many geographies but you also personally moved your family from LA to Chicago to Kansas City uh, oh, sorry, I missed Denver. L.A. to Denver, right? And LA then to Chicago. Okay. <laughs> sorry. No, um, so L.A. to Chicago. And that, um, that choice was made because at the time, 
Arthur Anderson was headquartered in Chicago, and my responsibilities had morphed into a global responsibility at that point, so I wanted to be at the nexus of, of where those decisions were being made. So I moved to Chicago. Um, and then, as things happen in people's lives, um, my wife and I, whom I met at Accenture, um, decided that um, having a family was something that was important to us. And living in Chicago and traveling the world was not conducive to that. Uh, and so another sort of important uh, part of my professional life um, I experienced right then when I resigned from Accenture at that point saying, hey, I can't keep flying around the globe. We want to have a family and settle down a little bit. My boss at the time said, slow down, slow down. You don't have to do that. We can make this work. What do you have in mind? And I said, well, um, I can't be traveling the way I've traveled. And my wife and I actually want to move somewhere where we can envision ourselves settling down and starting a family, namely Colorado. And he said, done. Easy. And I said, holy cow, this only gets better. I mean, how can this be? And so the professional part of this is that I actually took a step down. Um, I had been promoted through to a global head of talent acquisition, a very you know, a job that anyone would aspire to. And I loved, but I had to make a difficult choice at that point to step down. So I took a pay cut. I took a grade cut uh, in terms of my responsibilities, and we moved to Colorado. So, you know, fortunately, the Lord blessed us with our first child, um, and it turned out the way we had hoped. Um, and um, to fast forward a little bit from there, um, we actually then adopted twins um, here in Denver. And now we had three young children. And now my responsibilities had morphed again, and I was traveling a little bit more. And my wife said, dude, you're gone too much. I need some support with three young children. We're moving to Kansas City where my wife's family lives. So I said, done. There's an airport there. So we moved to Kansas City. Um, and again, my boss was very supportive, saying, you do what you need to do. Um, and so we moved from Denver to Kansas City. And that's where I um, sort of finished my Accenture career. Now, as part of the retirement from Accenture, um, we again said, hmm, we could live anywhere. You could do anything you want. What would that look like? And so that's how we ended up back here, me at Vale Resorts and us here in Denver. So I think there's a, there's a really interesting tidbit in there for the millennials who are today trying to picture themselves and how they will manage the balance over the years. Um, the fact that you were willing to take a step down, a step sideways, to ask for what you want. I mean, how, how, will, how would you interpret the backward-looking choices that you now see that you've made for people who are thinking about their own futures and how they're going to have the balance they seek? I guess a couple things, Aaron. One is um, that people I've come to learn actually have more choice than they think they do. And so I actually see that manifesting itself in many of the um, new graduates coming out of school is they take more control over their lives than I thought I had when I was that age. So I give... Uh, people credit for that. Um, and the second thing is to be willing to try it. Um, you know, especially the, the, the geographic, you know, where you live, that becomes part of your identity. And many people struggle with, well, what if I don't like it? It's okay. You can change it, you can change it right? And as you heard in my own journey, right, we've, we've come and gone and even come back. And that's the beauty of life in today's world is that you have those flexibilities if you're willing to explore them. And so that's my advice is to try it and go for what you're interested in and see how it turns out. Yeah, having moved five times for my career and one expat assignment, which you were very supportive of, I'm right there with you. There's just, it's, 
the the sky's the limit in terms of if you're willing to take a little risk and know that nothing is irreversible and see how it goes. So I'm, I'm with you. I hope you enjoyed hearing about David's journey to where he is today. In part two, we talk more about recruitment strategy, his view on metrics, the candidate experience thing, his advice to aspiring leaders, and a lot more. Big Fish, David Reed, part two, coming right up. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Aaron directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Erin on Twitter at Erin McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com.